Hello everybody, this is Paul Miller, and you're listening to the Tuna Town Talks podcast, located in Venice, Louisiana, the fishing capital of the world. How you doing out there? Sitting here talking to Polly, sitting in the carport, looking at the swamp. Just had some good fried fish, and uh, now we're drinking on some, some nice bourbon, huh? Yeah, for sure. Good little whiskey sip. <laughs> we had some good American red snapper for dinner. And goat cheese balls, yeah. yeah. That was pretty phenomenal, by the way. I really appreciate that. No problem, man. We uh we eat good around here. That's right, as most fishermen do, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So uh so Mike, man, uh I guess man, let's go ahead and start from the bottom, man. how'd you get started into fishing and uh, take us on your journey, man? What, what who is my corporate? <laughs> Man, I, I've always been an outdoors person. I didn't grow up on the coast. I grew up in Pelham, Alabama, just south of Birmingham. And, you know, hunting, fishing as a kid, you know, it consumed me then. It was a good place where I grew up in Pelham. It was, you know, small town back then. And, you know, there was opportunity for, you know, as far as people that lived outdoor lifestyle, there was plenty to do. Um, as far as saltwater, you know, my first experiences as a kid, when we went on vacation, you know, we went to Fort Walton, we went to Destin, Orange Beach, Gulf Shores, you know, which I grew as four hour drive to the beach, you know, so my dad take us charter fishing and that's kind of where I first got my my whistle wet you know as far as salt water goes and you know it was just straight bottom banging you know bottom yeah, fishing you, realize, man, you know world oh yeah yep other than creeks and lakes and people's ponds and and things like that because shoot i think by the time i was 10 or 12 i'd caught every bass within 30 miles of my house <laughs> uh, yeah the ponds for sure but you know like i said it was it was a cool place to to grow up and as far as yeah outdoors for sure but i think the first time i really saw blue water was with your dad really yes i didn't realize it was the first time yes um fishing with your dad that would have been people that don't know who my dad is my dad's uh, mark primo miller he's he's bad primofish.com since early 90s maybe early man 90s. your dad was like one of the first people to have a website like your dad like kind of like, the, the first time i ever like got on the internet like to in i primofish.com it's like i called my brother i was like or my brother called me he goes man get on the, this thing primofish.com he just put those pictures up from when i went when we went fishing i was like huh what do you mean? You look at them on the computer, you know, and he's like, you got the dates and, you know, it was like, wow, your dad was one of the first, you know, yeah, yeah in that yeah, opening the door. Like I can literally go back on his website and find every yeah. birthday, baseball game, every fishing trip for sure. Really? Every that is so cool. Trip, like he's got pictures of all of us and everything. I, I guess that was when the first time we went with your dad was 90 seven or 98 and we went out of gauchet in the pro line is he still has that boat today doesn't he same same boat boat, no kidding (laughs) well your dad he's got his sixth engine right scuba diving was our first interest going with your dad when we met mark walker 
His dad was your dad. was your dad's neighbor. Right, right. Hey, this guy's got a boat. He's going to take us out and go dive around the rigs. Because in high school, I worked at a scuba training facility and did tons of diving, you know, right. freshwater diving, whatever, but so deep. You had, so. Like, so you had like the cert and everything. Oh, yes. Yes. Like hours of diving, like working at that dive facility in high school, man, I dove all summer long. You know, it was like after work, we dive. They had platforms and stuff in the water and enclosed pools that needed maintenance and things like that. So you're using tools underwater and diving all the time. You know, I dive, dive, dive. I had the keys to the place. I mean, after hours, like partying and having fun, we'd go to Blue Water to the quarry and that's, you know, we would swim and this and that, you know, it was was a neat place there in Pelham, but did a lot of diving before your dad took us to the next level. (laughs) Like, I think after the first time he took us, he was kind of like, all right, I can work with these boys. And each time after that, it got more progressed. We went to deeper water. We shot bigger fish. Um, we did deeper dives. And we fished in the meantime, but diving. Yeah, and, you the surface. Yeah, we're not, we weren't so much, we were spear fishing. Right. You know, we're shooting big jacks, big snappers, groupers from time to time. But the first time I saw blue water and actually caught a mahi, was with your dad we were out there the blue water pushed in we're on the shelf like right at the, at the edge of the shelf yeah. coming out of gaucher and we found some floating debris out there your dad takes this rod it had this little spoon he slings it out there yanks it a few times and this mahi mahi skyrockets out of the water it was like what <laughs> what is that <laughs> um you know that was kind of like my first blue water experience and that day as well that that pretty water pushed in we caught a couple mahis we shot some cobias around a weather buoy and yeah had some i did a 252 foot dive on an 80 compressed tank <laughs> with your dad that's pretty crazy man. 200 what we we dropped a camera we were bounce diving this rig the bottom was that's 295 295 was the bottom and we were just bounce diving looking for big jacks like we would go down i think that first dive we went to 150 180 shot two jacks and we're on our way up and in the mix of us coming up the underwater camera got dropped mm. and went to the bottom oh boy so we get up in the boat i had borrowed this camera from that dive shop i was working at you know i'm like freaking out i'm like oh my god your dad goes man i've dove 300 foot before it's like what (laughs) and we had already made a dive you know so we burned some time and it he was all like yeah let's go try to get the camera and i'm like what you know at this point in time we had done diving with your your dad knows what the hell he's doing he is a water man Uh you know um fish in the water he puts his gear on and i'm like i don't even really have time to contemplate i put my stuff on i'm like i'm going to get this camera and like before i have all my he's off the side of the boat and gone you know well we hung two deco bottles off first and hung the deco bottles at, I don't know, was it 50, 60 foot, 
30 foot, somewhere right. around in there. So he had some air to come back. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a little bit late getting in the water. He had beat, you know, it was like, dude, st- hold on, wait for me. You know, blooms, he was gone. So I jump in, I start, you're just pedaling. You got your, you clearing your ears on the way down. And the water was super clear. So that's a super confident thing. Like, right. man, the visibility right there the that day right. was probably 60 foot, you know. And as I got deeper and deeper and deeper, I never really looked. The first time I picked my gauge up and looked, it started to get dark and it was getting a little chilly. And I picked my gauge up and I was almost at 200 feet. Mm-hmm. I could see your dad's bubbles, but I couldn't see him. Like, you know, that's kind of, that's what I was following. And then I hit that 200 mark, and I was slowing down, and the water started. It started to get murky. Like, I couldn't see the bottom. You know, if I could have seen the bottom, maybe my cup. But I, and, man, I stopped for a second. And I could see your dad's bubbles. I could see his bubbles. And all of a sudden, he comes shooting past me like a rocket coming up. Like, didn't wave, didn't give me the thumbs up. He just paddles past me, going up. And I start, and I'm look, and I'm like, I know the bottom's right there, but I can't see it. You know, I kind of started getting a little nervous, and then I had, you know, like one of those moments. One thing about diving is keep your cool. Yeah. <laughs> keep your cool. Stay in your cool. And I kept telling myself, cool. I was like, just keep your cool, man. I had plenty of air. I knew I was way deeper than what I should have been at that point too, and I knew I was down there by myself. Yeah. You know, I was like, just, and I kind of hovered there for a minute. And kind of enjoyed <laughs> that narked feeling. Exactly, man. So I could have closed my eyes and faded like off. Drunk, right? It, it was <laughs> right. Like the bubbles going past my ears sounded like breaking glass. Yeah. You know, I took a few breaths and was like, it's a different I was, it, and then like, keep your cool, keep yeah. your cool. I was like, I need to start going up. So I started going fairly slow, right, yeah. easing back up. Like, oh well, whatever. Audio's camera. This way stupid and finally i catch up with your dad's on the deco bottle well we sat there and breathed those deco bottles pretty much till they were gone i mean we were at least 30 minutes because we had already made a dive before that and right. then we made a second dive that That's was deeper really what you're supposed to do. right the granted we weren't spending bottom time at, you know it was right, right. bounce dive like yeah. your, your dad bounce dive and uh did he find the camera? Nope. No, uh-uh. No, no. He's got right to the Merc layer, too. Like, Oma, and he turned around and came up. But uh Uh-uh. <laughs> or the camera's still down there somewhere. But uh, that was a hell of an experience. My computer on my dive gauge when I got up, it was 252 feet. Wow. Um, <laughs> and you, we were talking a little while ago, and I told you I haven't dove in years. Man, that was the last it's time. like going fast in cars now. I, I don't. I've burned up all my chances. <laughs> Did I, you go back and dive a lot after that? Or yeah, that was in that range. The next couple years, we did diving with your dad there, and then through college, I still worked at that that training facility. But for me, growing up, man, it was just the way of life. I can't ever see myself stopping. Like, <laughs> my brothers both dive. Yeah. Weekly, monthly. I mean, your dad know. was about there my shoving dad, you dad, off the boat. My dad's 62 now. Right, and right. He's still down at 200 yeah. plus on the weekend. It, it blows my mind. <laughs> and he was doing the, you know, his thing and with the diving out there, and he was a real big camera guy because he was reporting for the state. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when the state of Mississippi started dumping the wrecks. Yeah, for the Mississippi Gold right. Mines. That's how yeah. we grew up. You know, he, oh, yeah. he would go out there and survey the reefs. And it was like we were forced to do it. Right, right. Thankfully now. So <laughs> yeah. glad that we had to do all The that, experience but. you were logging, being offshore and doing that stuff. But, you know, that led into that that was right during my college year so i guess i was still playing ball or towards the end of you play baseball or football, football at uab oh, okay. you know i wanted to head down towards the coast and that right out of high school but hell i, I got a football scholarship right. you know it was right. played i was an athlete my whole life football baseball wrestling and the scholarship you know it's like well, that's a no-brainer <laughs> you know and then I got hurt my junior year, tried to come back, couldn't do it, finished up school. And before before I didn't even go to my graduation, I was already in Destin. I had a buddy that worked on a charter boat on the Anastasia, Kyle Bufkin, and he was like, come on down. And it wasn't a – it was like, just come on and hang for a couple of weeks. You know, yeah. man, I just – all you know, I played football – and went to school and did all the things I was supposed to do for just a minute there. I was like, I'm, I'm going to go do what I want to do for a minute. Right. You know, right, right. I just graduated from college. Find you know, that's, yeah. And that's kind of, I can sign and see that. That's kind of forced on you, right? If somebody's offering you all this money to come play college ball. And you're good at it. Right. right. <laughs> that's what you've done up until that. And grant, and I wanted to do it. You know, I love playing right, ball. Right, right. Um, watching it on TV, I'm not a huge fan. I don't stop what I'm doing to watch the game. Typically, I, I've at that point, I had donated and dedicated enough of my life to the game of football. Right. I was content right. with what I'd done to that point. I got stopped by injury. Now, granted, I don't think I would have made it to the pros or nothing. I would have finished out my college career mm-hmm. with a little bit more closure. But, you know, because, man, I played pretty much injury-free for so long. And then right there at the end, I had two injuries, yeah, right like, bam, bam. Peak, right. right. Yeah. I was I was the biggest, strongest, fastest I'd ever been, playing great, doing great, and then, ba-bam. Yeah. You know. It's a hard pill to swallow. All right. But, you know. Next I, chapter, right? Yeah. Next chapter, went down there. It pretty much at the end of that too. I had just been going fishing, kind of helping my buddy, second and third mate on the Anastasia's a, a big multi-passenger boat in Destin, established boat, been running there for years at One the time. Meal, Definitely, as far as making money, why you're going out and beating the bottom every day, right. but you know at the end of the year you're going to make a lot of money working on this boat as a mate. Mm-hmm. You know, because Destin at the time, I showed up there. And I guess that was is in 2001. And I caught the end of an error, like how we talked before, how it was starting to be a turnover. These crush, kill, mash generation of no seasons, no limits. Those guys were towards the end of their career turning over. Uh, right. Give the the Willie Frank Davises, uh, the Tom. Um, uh, Tommy Brownings, you know, that clientele was starting because when I started there in 2001, snappers were open from April 15th until October the 31st, and you could catch four per person per day, you know, so it was still pretty much a slaughter. And then over the next few years, they, they started cutting it down. A lot of them old timers, these mashers, they were toward, you know, 
here, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah, right. And their clientele. Yeah, clientele was expected. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, well, you can only keep this now or do that. Anyways, I'm glad I showed up there when I did to 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 see that. You know those those old a lot of respect to them. You know them guys have been there and destined for a lot to learn. Um, repetition in fishing, like on my days off, I started on the Anastasia second mating. The boat next door needed some help. It was called the Sea Notes, Captain Doug Dietz. I ran two trips with him. The third day he came to me and he said, "I'm about to fire my mate. You want this job?" And I'm like, "Oh." Well, I, you know, it was kind of, yeah, <laughs> go fish and get paid for it. The sea notes was eight knots wide open, yeah. dead bait, mackerel fishing, a lot of six and eight hour. It was the building blocks of, you know, I'm glad I got to do that and go dead bait troll for mackerels, yeah. you know, with a duster and a planer and a, a, a six alt yeah. pin, yeah. you know, and it just, like I said, the building blocks in that you charter you fishing. Those for granted. You don't even realize it at the time. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I, I mean, you probably um, had a lot more experience than me, but like those early moments where you're, you know, I, I remember my first gig, man, I thought I knew it all. Yeah. And it took me to lose that gig before I actually right. realized that, yeah. like, nope, all these people right here, they, oh, got, yeah. they got a lot of stuff to show you. Oh yeah. I started with Doug. Doug did the same. He he took the short trips out of the booth. We'd run two a day. He was perfectly content with that. That's how his business was set up, mm-hmm. you know. And then I'd see these boats like the finest kind and the Anastasia and the Kelly Girl and uh, whatever boat Buddy Godwin was running. And they would come in off these twelve-hour trips and just load the dock up like. You know, and it progressed into that. Finally, a job came available down the dock on a, a GNS boat called the Phoenix. It was Captain Scott Robson, and GNS yeah, the boats they're made in they uh, were made in Freeport, Destin. Gotcha. They made some some yacht boats, gotcha. uh, you know, some like the Molly as a GNS, but they also made a lot of the Destin, yeah, style, right? But they made a lot of Destin charter boats back in the day that weren't the style of the molly they were big fish killing rigs comparable to a resmondo yeah you know the living quarters were what they were you had some bunks and that but you had a big salon you had a big ass back deck and you had a hot tub live well um you could make things happen right Um, right and that progressed me far along scott had been in the game long time he had his stuff together he was getting his charter boat business together long story short he was an awesome guy to work for it was fun going to work every day he had an established clientele of repeat customers that that's what you want like for the most part they knew how to work the reel they kind of knew the baby steps were cut out right you know, man, we've been going with Scott five, six years now. We love Captain Scott. That bottom fishing days with Scott were they were awesome. I mean, catching those big snappers, those big giant groupers, those big jacks, and then about maybe three or four trips a month. Uh, 
two or three trips a month we would go offshore. Right. Mostly with him that first year, if we went offshore, we were going towards the nipple. Um, more than likely wouldn't make it to the spur. Like we didn't look at no Ross report or Hilton's or nothing back then. It's like, hey, we're going to head it out towards the nipple. If we run across blue water, great. At a certain point, we just got to put them out and start fishing. Yeah. You know, and that kind of caught some mahis like that. Never caught a marlin with Scott and but you know we didn't do a whole lot well at the end of that charter season right there things were wrapping up the rodeo was about it was started in october the destin fishing rodeo it was a month-long fishing tournament amongst charter boats private boats it extended the fishing season about another month after school started back and I was kind of starting, you know, Scott's like, well, in the off season, I go to the boat yard, yada, yada, I go do this, whatever, kind of go find something to do, you know. Well, that's when I met Gary Jarvis. He comes strolling down the dock one day. I was cleaning the back of the boat. He was like, hey, how you doing? I'm Gary Jarvis, yada, yada, yada. Um, man, I heard some good stuff about you. Long story short, I got a spot available to go commercial fishing this winter if you would like to join us cool i'm in uh i had no idea what i was getting myself into the where stories were guys, where were you, where, you guys were going to be commercial fishing out of destin yeah at that point in time snapper season was done like what they called rodeos like you owned if you owned a 2,000 pound permit when the rodeo started usually it was the first seven to ten days of every month in the winter time like december january february well, we started it, November was our first, that first. And it was the first seven, you make, you leave the dock, go catch 2,000 pounds, run them back in, unload them, ice the boat, run back out, catch 2,000 pounds. Dude, it was the hardest work I'd ever done in my life. commercial fishing is, man, I never. Doing it that style was, it was crazy. I mean, there was many a times where we had no business being out there because it was rough. But the way that it was set up back then, if it was going to be six foot through the opening, they didn't go, okay, fellas, we're going to push it back a week till the weather calms. No, you don't leave the dock. You don't make no money. But at the time, you know, I was in my mid-20s and every time we would leave the dock and catch 2,000 pounds – Man, I'd make a little over a thousand bucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's a lot of money. like at the end of the season, like I said, I'd never been. I saw a world of fishing. Like I had no idea. You know, you take for granted you eat fish at a restaurant and all this stuff where it comes from. Well, I just got a real good. Taste. This is where red snipers come from. Yeah. And it was. Uh, I mean, commercial style fishing, I hate to refer to it as rape of the ocean, but we roll up on these spots and bombs away, baby. (laughs) Get them. I mean, that's commercial fishing, you know. You're out. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. Were we out there killing the whole world and we're going to make these things extinct? No. No. Uh uh. But it was long hours. Gary Jarvis, who is the mayor of Destin now like I learned so much from from him on as far as on the the drive like 
keep going when you're tired keep fishing the bite doesn't happen all day it's like a pace to move at this guy he was a leader and i see why he's mayor of destin today like if i was going to war i would want him in my foxhole (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and you know i heard so many horror stories about him you know how yells and screams and whatever and man if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing at the time and doing it to a, a good level you wouldn't hear much out of Gary, right. but you know, you sw- it was so much like working for a coach, and I had dealt with those my whole life. My dad was a professional athlete, so like he one, he kind of reminded me a lot of my dad. You right, know, right. fly good and do nothing. You ain't gonna hear nothing out of me, but slip up a little bit. Oh my God, you know, yeah. you gonna hear about it. Uh, <laughs> not in any kind of powder puff way you either. Like kind of put that drive mm. in it kind of helped in those tournaments he did I mean, he did man that paid that go you need that push yourself definitely and that commercial fishing was the same like during those rodeos i would be so physically exhausted and we're on our way back out and i'm thinking to myself man this dude is an iron man <laughs> you know like me and rodney are laying on the Don't floor like using busted up reels for a pillow you know like man we can we can get 15 minutes of sleep it's like uh you know but it trained me in a way so we would do the snapper opening and then after that it was take the bandits off the back of the boat put the other cooler on get the 50 wides out and me and two other killers got to go out there and go hand-to-hand with the yellowfin tunas. <laughs> and you guys were selling those as well. Selling those. Um, wow, so that, that is pretty cool. That, what year was this? Just that that was on. 2001. Wow. was my first Man, trip. Oh, 01, There wasn't. You know, even like down through the charter fleet, like a yellowfin, like never, like, oh, it's those are like way over I mean, to I'm the... Sure there was a handful of people doing it. There's no way it was now. Gary had been doing it for a few years before I started with him. So his kind of learning curve on it was over. So by the time I went to work for him, he was a lot more dialed in on, okay, this is. So up until, I guess, the begin after Christmas, we came back. Because that time we would fish out of Destin up until right around the time Christmas hit. Then we packed it in and we would go fish out of Fushon. Mm. And midnight lump right out in front of Fushon, like he's telling me about this midnight lump and I'm like, whatever, dude, uh, <laughs> let's go. Like I had no idea times you know where the hell I was at. I don't even know where the hell I was at over there. You know, it's right. like, man, we're somewhere in Louisiana. Yeah, I think I need to call my mom. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, my first experience out to the lump and we had tuna fished up until that point that was my first time of tuna fishing like going out on the floaters in november and december after sniper season and we were catching good fish catching them steady catching bigger fish than i'd ever seen before fishing methods i'd never fished before and i was on the boat with two fine tuned killing machines that had been doing it for a long time I was lucky. I was right. just the sponge there soaking up all this stuff. So yes, cool. sir. No, sir. What do you need? You know, um, the lump. I, I don't even know how the, the, 
first or second trip we ever went there. The first trip we filled the box up in two days. We didn't even fish at nighttime. We'd fish from sun up to sundown when the sun would go down. And back then we anchored, yeah. so we're sitting on the hook. So Gary would get to come down and fish with us. Right. And, I mean, uh, people that don't know, he's talking about the Midnight Lump, a very famous spot out of Venice. Um, and if you listen to our, my second podcast with Mike Burnett, he actually tells the story about how he came to find out about the, the Midnight Lump. And this commercial boat there gave him a news. He needed a newspaper, and he ended up fishing for yep. news there. And yeah. Him, but just to give everybody a precursor about what we're talking about. I think it was a spot before tunas were ever a thing in the Gulf of Mexico. The lump there, these bandit boats would anchor up on it and catch mangoes. And so, because I mean, there was all kinds of bottom critters there too. And then they'd get covered up with yellow fins. But I don't know how Gary got that hot tip or whatever. The second trip we made out there, I think we could ice like maybe around 3,000 pounds, maybe a little bit more depending on the size of the fish. We did a full commercial trip from sun up to sundown. We filled the box up with mont like, it was crazy. You got a wad of chum in your hand and you throw it in the water and like the 100, 120 pounders race to it and blow up on it. And then you see the big giant ones underneath, you know, like, it was nuts. Like. I and I was green. I've never seen nothing like that. But repetitions, handling big fish, gaffing big fish, actually getting to get on the rod and feel a big fish, work a fish out of a harness. That's where it, all the reps come from. The reps, man. It definitely brought me to the next level. So the next year when I came back to Destin to work with Scott and by Gary, I was like, man, you're going to charter fish with us next year. Me and me and Rodney Johnson was his deckhand, Rod lifer in the fishing industry. I looked up to him the whole time. He's still fishing to this day, hardcore, just, yeah, awesome guy. And no, I'm, I'm going back to fish on the Phoenix. So that next year fishing on the Phoenix, when we would get offshore overnight trips on the Phoenix, we would, after, then go and go tuna fishing you know down and then scott like me being pretty green i had a little experience by that point and you're going fishing with scott and he's like all right man what are we going to do when we get there oh, you know? <laughs> it's like <laughs> man you know we're gonna we got a live well full of cigar minas and heron we're gonna get there and start slinging them out like live chum and and the trips i did with scott there Back then, man, tuna fishing was it, it was a different fishery than now. It was, I wouldn't say a guarantee, but it was, we never, leaving out of Destin, we never had to go any further than the Petronius or the Marlin rig or the, you're going to get them right in there. Right in there. Right. Like, that's where it, it was good. A dead ringer. You know, from the Destin Sea Buoy, I think the Petronius, like 96 miles. You know, so it's a good haul from there. But we start going there, taking some, you know, people over there, catching tunas, had incredible bottom fishing with Scott that whole year. Great time with him at the end of the season. During that summer, I met a guy on a private boat out of Louisiana and formed a relationship with him fishing in my off days that summer. And charter season started to wind down. I did a little bit of commercial fishing with Gary that winter, 
and then went to work full time on this private boat out, out of Louisiana. Don't you thought that was pretty cool, huh? Man, I, I had, when I, my first year there, and like I had no idea that world even existed. Like you'd be sitting there cleaning the back of your charter boat one day after a trip and you'd see one of them yachts roll by and you're like, who is that? Yeah. Where have they, where have they been? I what are that they? too. You think about like the, the, like the guy driving it owns it, you know what I mean? Just yeah. Like, any other. like <laughs> anyways, I had an end to there and took this job a big allure of the job is hey man we're going to be fishing out of venice a bunch and fishing out of louisiana and doing tournaments i was like i'm in what do you mean we're gonna like stay and fish the mouth of the river all you know it was like yeah i took that job on this boat and ended up being on that boat for nine years really yes what was the name of the boat the first choice the first choice yeah and man back then there wasn't a bunch of so tournaments you, so you, were you know Did you end up being the captain? yeah man i made it the whole and then by the end it was like pulling double duty like you're driving to where you're going fishing and then when you get there you're getting in the cockpit and like it was definitely pulling a lot of double duty on that oh, boat okay. I see what you're you saying. know so like i had people like that. that came and worked through the years and hearing that but man it was some of the the most fun crazy fishing years learning like fishing out there at the mount there granted there wasn't as many rigs back then but that was from about 2002 or three till katrina hit like during that time period yeah like man well i wouldn't say we had it to ourselves but it wasn't it was like yeah like to see another boat out there at mars and ursa like we'd see uh, beach roll up there sometime in the pale horse and we'd, we'd be like dude look at this center consoles way out here by mars and ursa <laughs> you know like this dude's crazy it's changed that so much you know the whole the whole yeah there's a lot more boats out there and there's really no more frontier but i got to experience incredible fishing back in the day when their venice wasn't very much it wasn't busy um a different than what it is not that it's bad now venice is a cool place but no, it uh it's, it's different of fish there. oh yeah for but sure i mean i think i mean things have changed within fishing but i think the world has changed in every aspect you know there's just more people definitely definitely and communication like back then you know when i was fit you didn't have social media and that you, you had magazines who, right <laughs> like after i did a, that season of the on the the lump there the next year i picked up some fishing magazine and there was an article wrote up i forget what magazine it was or whatever you know about the midnight lump like you know that's how people found out about yeah. things like you pick up a magazine and read it you know but uh yeah I had a great time on there that kind of ran its course um you know, after that long, I was ready to go a different route. They were ready to go a different route. And then... Did you guys do a lot of tournaments on the first Bunch, year? bunch of tournaments. You, you know, it was... Um, on the choice, our biggest win there was the, the first blue marlin I ever killed was a 685. Wow. And that was 
Memorial. On the, the first choice, like I don't, marlin wise, we caught some marlin and this and that. Like, dude, tunas was our thing. That's what they we don't, we killed big tunas. All, they started calling the first choice the Tunasaurus. <laughs> you know, like. I, mean, I get that. I mean, that's like your background. That's what you do. It was, you know, and that's where we went back and fished during these tournaments. You know, we would run back west and fish there. And as that, as that, uh, program evolved the guy also he had an airplane like so fishing the double nipple in Lloyd's Ridge that's when I got introduced to that like we'd fly that plane out there and see the right conditions like oh my gosh we're coming back here and a lot of those big tunas we caught through those years on the on the first choice we caught out there around Lloyd's Ridge and the double nipple like out there in open water wow. like those big rip you know off the, the big I mean, rips guides down in Venice say that a lot of those big fish you're going to find them in open water uh, they don't have to be around stuff they're big and bad and they can eat caught many a big ones in open water just blind trolling mm -hmm. you know hey we're going to go to this other rig but you know it's closer up on the shelf we're just going to troll to it mm -hmm. and you're out there in no man's land boom boom yeah. you catch a you 180 the big ones so, really long uh, yes definitely That's for whatever it seems like Way more I've ever caught on the center rigger or a long rigger than I ever caught on a short rigger, yeah. um, for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know what um, that is either, but I've always said that. I don't long. know. But then that, you know, towards – after that, then I went – at that point I was like, there's no more in my career. I'm done trying to pursue anything that's going to put me in the cockpit. I have enough knowledge and experience now. I feel confident that I could benefit somebody in a competitive tournament boat. And went to work on the real fire in 2013. 20, 2012. 20, yep, yeah, 2012. And I don't think it was the first year, I think, and then the second that first year I don't remember if we did turn I don't remember when I came on during the year but the next full tournament season on that boat is when we caught the state record the state record blew yes for Alabama that was the first year you guys competed they had been a boat owner for two or three years before me they had another captain the first time and yeah on the real fire yeah yeah you know and uh so from there it was cool because they were a pretty fresh crew right. you know they haven't they hadn't been anywhere been everywhere and done all that that's so refreshing on a boat to get on there with folks that everything is new to them or mostly new like man we've never seen that before yeah. <laughs> man we've never caught one that big before you know it breathed a new light into my fishing because I just came from an operation where I had been fishing with the same people and we've been doing the same thing for almost 10 years. Right, 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 right. You know, so. So they weren't showing you nothing new, yeah. But yeah. But I had a chance to be like, this guy's a badass right now. I don't know about that, but you know, it was like, yeah, just to hear I'm in the chair, I don't have to worry about, you know, in the pit. I, I'm pretty confident I know where to go and to set us up for success. And, man, it was it, it was a good run. My next, hell, from 2013 
until what 2018 or 19 wow. i don't know shoot i killed seven blue marlin wow and and in eight tournaments, yeah right? in tournaments all of wow. them um what and caught numerous what was the what was the state record you still hold the state record right? man scooter porto on the floor to leave beat me out last year oh. he caught a 851 uh ours was 845 i think his was 851 or 852 wow. but well deserved man well, yeah, you know for a long time right I mean, um for seven years seven years that's awesome. yeah and then the record we broke that night, it was the record had stood for like 24 years. A boat came in right before us and broke it that night. And then we brought our fish in an hour later and broke the record again. So a 24 year old record got broken twice in the same night. Wow. You know. <laughs> um, What'd you guys win? Do you remember? 304,000. And which, you know, back then, yeah, big. Like now you win that tournament, you're going to win over a half million dollars. Yeah. Easy. It's crazy how so, much it gro it's grown in such a short yeah. amount of time. I mean, you said that was 2014. 2013. 2013. Yeah. And we're in 2021 now. I mean, that's, golly. I, mean, I was graduating high school then. You know, yeah. I remember watching all this stuff. You know, we go and you look at y'all like rock stars. I mean, that's when the tournaments were. Man, I mean, the, they still are. I mean, I mean Oh, yeah. They, they made the, you know, they, they, it was like a changing point where they made they made the people and the fishermen feel like rock stars. Yeah. You know what I mean? I definitely. Mean, Inter backing into the yes. wharf and there's camera crews yeah. and lights and everything. They I turned mean, it into bags. a show, oh, yeah, yes, that dude. people wanted to watch. Right. <laughs> like, you look at the tournaments now, like the turnout, people that plan their vacations around when the tournament's going to be, like, them. at the wharf because they want to watch the wharf. Yeah. <laughs> And how so many people that have no idea the fishery that sits right in their backyard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it like, because so man, I fished in a lot of, been fortunate enough to fish a lot of different destinations that were great. But man, the Gulf of Mexico, it's hard to man, it is. It's, it's my favorite place to fish, you know, bring me back to the Gulf stick me off the mouth of the river somewhere and and yeah so i'm at home whenever you think about it i mean you've got this huge current meeting you know the third largest river in the world and i'll sit up and, and look at google earth at night looking for a spot that looks similar you know? right looking there, for the next frontier but there's yeah. really not there's yeah. nothing that you know what i mean that yeah I'd say maybe like brazil maybe but it's not even the same you know it's, where you got that that river that dumps out pushing the loop current pushing against it and then it drops off to over 600 feet of water so much change so quick yes canyons a lot of action pushing bait you know it pushes that ledge that you know it, yeah it makes a great fishery you it's know unreal. yeah really for sure it's a it's we're a hell so of a playground we're so fortunate which yeah figure out ways to protect it for sure. oh yeah I want to keep it here, yeah but, uh, that's awesome the only the, the other fishery that i'm just in love with that i'm so thankful i got to experience on my own boat was panama and costa rica panama especially yeah. like when we got to go down there on the sherry and spend a full season with some people that knew how to do it let their crew take the ball and run with it and had some incredible 
So what, after like, five or six years on the sh- on the real fire, you went to the Sherry? To the Sherry. Yeah, I think I worked on the real fire for three seasons. Three seasons. And then went to work on the Sherry for another three. Gotcha. But the Sherry operation there was an owner and his wife and that's pretty much it was it they just wanted them on the boat yeah. which was great you know yeah, for, i would as have a, as a captain they would like bring two mates you know they were all like if you're gonna bring somebody on the boat bring some you know which was awesome so you know i got to go fish big tournaments and cool destinations with incredible help in the cockpit and talent which made everything just congeal for a perfect yeah it was all and then sherry polk is probably the best angler i have ever seen in a fighting chair really it she is a beast i've met her a few times and she's the nicest lady in the world i never in a million years because i tournament fished against them a lot over the years they've been doing it forever and I always, you know, I've talked to Sherry and met Sherry on the dock and this and that and had always, I was like, man, why don't I, the first couple of trips we fished together, I was like, dang. I was like, here, try this, do this a little different, pull the footrest down a little more, lean forward. Send. Well, how come nobody ever showed me that? I was like, I don't know. That's just how. And then two trips after that, it was like, yes, <laughs> I will take you anywhere and put you up against anybody. She was an awesome angler, which makes your job as a captain a lot, I wouldn't say easier, more enjoyable. Like driving hard on a fish. Yeah. Yeah. With somebody down there that's got smoke coming off the reel handle. She's turning it so hard. It's like, go. And then she says, go fast. Go, go. And I'm like, man, this thing ain't going no faster. And she's down there saying, go, go. Why ain't he going? You know? (laughs) I hear you through that headset. You know, which, but to go there and do that with them. We had a, a Pinus Bay trip down there in in Panama that was it was epic. I mean it was one of the coolest days of fishing, two days of fishing actually, of it was pretty much us and the fleet. The the Pinus Bay Tropic Star fleet, which consists of I think it's twelve thirty one Berchams. Well, we get to Pinas Bay. We fished our way from the Pearl Islands all the way down. Had a good trip there. Caught a couple of blues. Missed a couple more. Caught a couple of those giant Panamanian Dorados. All of them. Once once in a blue moon, Buell would get in the chair. But she's a beast. I mean, she's, you know, especially on a big fish. If it was a big fish, Sherry's in the chair. You know, because that's, that's who you want. Well, we get down there. The next day, we shag out early. We beat the fleet out, and we go straight to Zane Gray Reef. Go there, start catching bait, catching a few baits. Two charter boats pull up. They catch a couple baits, and as soon as they catch baits, they start. They blast off. I was like, huh. The water there didn't look real pretty. There was bait around, you know, I was like, what these guys know. So I scampered down the tower and I flicked my radar on because I can see better on the one in the wheelhouse. And I could see the fleet of boats coming out. And everybody in those two boats that left us were kind of going generally to the same area. You know, I could see them on the radar. So I was like, reel it up, boys. Boom. So we blast off and pretty much 
another eight miles offshore, there was a massive, like the National Geographic thing you see, you know, birds diving, frigates, bait. It was like, and man, I'm new. I'm an outsider to these guys. Was I about to just go pile up in there? No, I, I, I rolled up in there. We had bait already. I put some baits out and I kind of stayed on the outskirts and watched those guys, what they were doing, mm-hmm. you know, and pretty much each one of them or two groups of boat got on each side of the bait and they worked the sides of the bait in a circle, mm-hmm. kind of in unison. You don't ride through so, through. Exactly. Right. You know, they had it down. So, you know, I kind of you know, fished around, fished the other side and then kind of eased my way in the mix. And these guys were super – this fishing is so close quarters and everybody's so close to each other fishing this bait ball when the boat, the 31 Bertram, would go by next to you. And I'm in the tower. So it's like I'm looking down at all these people from the, from the sky. You know, you could hear them talking. You know, they come by, hey, man, look at that boat. Hey. You know, it's like <laughs> there was two days of fishing where it two parts of the day each day – the shit hit the fan where it was time. yes you know that first day we rolled up in there and like a couple boats would hook up before i pulled up in the circle one of them caught a marlin i think a small one another one fought a tuna out into the distance it was a giant and it happened like in a sort of minute you're like bam that dude just hooked up because these 31 bertrams they're loud as hell and they smoke you know and uh, like you'd see one start burning down and you could hear them over there like yelling spanish you know and it's like and then you see a black marlin jumping and you're looking you're like oh my god look that dude's hooked up and then you look to your left and there's another black marlin another boat hooked about to crash into your bow and you're like Oh, damn. Hold on, boys. I got to turn. And as you're turning down and looking in the cockpit to tell them you're about to turn hard, he's going, hey, man, I'm getting bit. Hey, man, I'm getting bit. And it's like, okay, cool. We got a black marlin jumping. It it was like, you know, and being up in that tower and in close quarters like that and catching big – I've been in a mackerel circle before, a tuna circle, you know, tunas where everybody – this is blue and black marlins, That's you know, crazy, and they're yeah. like, literally one goes underneath your bow and you're like, God, how did he not hit the boat? You know, and he comes out the other side <laughs> and then the dude comes burning by you in his 31 Bertram and gives you a hang loose sign like this, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, cool, you know, yeah. and I didn't char like, I just kind of, when those guys, I think figured out that, you know, I wasn't butting my way up, you know, I was respecting their shit. Yeah. They were right. riding my way, give you the thumbs up, you know, Man, I don't know. I got it wrote down in this book somewhere, but the next couple days there, we caught the biggest tuna I've ever caught in my life, which we never weighed it. I don't know. It was 74 inches long, and it was big around. It, it was wow. unbelievable. I, I, I don't think he would have went 300, but he was definitely 250, wow. 260-ish. Like, we caught some blues. We caught some blacks. Never caught a, a big black. Man, so that's your but, log uh, book. When did you start keeping a log Man, most of this probably started, and like I was telling you before, one thing I regret doing in my fishing career, especially early on, is keeping a log. Yeah. 
I shoot myself in the foot, you know, and, but here towards the last, I would say maybe four or five years, I have a lot, you know, scribbled down here and mostly how I would break my trips down into would be date where we were fishing, my trip hours, the total hours of the boat, my trip fuel, my average gallon burn and then my trip miles for that that's what i would record and then what i caught like here on this day this was the 49th time the sherry left the dock and we went one for one on blue marlins at marco polo on trip number 47 you know Man, you guys fished a lot huh a lot a lot. Yeah, you guys did fish a lot i wish you know as far as numbers wise you know, I got a lot of that stuff wrote down here, but I, I wish I would have been a little bit better, <laughs> you know. But that, that Pinus Bay trip there, in the next day, almost on the exact same numbers, that bait ball was there again. Really? And it was the exact same scenario. Like two times out of the day for an hour at a time, it went ballistic. Wow. You know, just, like I said, not on, you're hooked up. And there's four other boats that are hooked up, burning down around you. You know, you just look around and you're not, you can see the jungle in the hillside right there. It's just, it was a surreal moment of fishing. Like maybe I've done something in my fishing career. <laughs> I'm at one of the hottest destinations in the world. On one of the hottest bites. Hottest bites, rigger to rigger with the fleet. And I'm bowed up right now. Wow. You know, That's like. Amazing, um yeah. You know, there's moments, you know, there's moments like that. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been on a bike that hot. I know, I know I haven't, but there's moments like that in your fishing career that are just like a staple, and you just remember it. Yeah. And it, I don't know. It keeps that passion burning. Yeah. <laughs> and like you say, you've never, you've been on a hot bite of fish before. Yeah. You know, like tunas, you can't get the bait out there, but. This was blue and black marlins. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. it was like, like, like what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> and to be up in that tower and to be away, that boat had the, the engines in that boat were very, very quiet anyways. And when you get up in the tower of that and thing. Y'all don't know what that boat is. So, it was a 72 Viking. That thing was a. <laughs> beautiful boat. I mean, it was a, a world traveler, comfortable, enclosed bridge, kill, killing machine. And it was fun. I got to go and build that boat from scratch at Viking, and yeah, lay it out. And this is what, and it ended up. It was hurts me a little in my soul to see it tied up in a boat slip right now for sale. Yeah, they you know, it. like no, they bought them. They got they another, another sixty-eight. Boat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no, they'll be tournament fishing next year and traveling somewhere next winter. But, uh, Good for them, yeah, so yeah what I, are you doing these days? You, said you made some moves, huh? You made some, man, I did. I, uh, after the sherry, yeah, well, it kind of came about during the sherry times, and it was actually the, the propeller shop that had always done my propellers. I'd formed a relationship with the owner of the company, Intercoastal Prop, and we had talked, you know through the years whatever and what are you gonna do anyways long story short he was like man if you were ever interested in doing this 
He said, your network would benefit you. He said, hell, you know most of my customers anyways. And he said, you'll walk in the door with. So I started going in there and piddling with them to see. Did you already know about props? No, uh uh-uh. Other than how they are supposed to perform and feel on a boat. You know, load, fuel, uh, burnage, uh, RPMs. I had a basic knowledge, but as far as like the shape of the propeller and the tuning and part of the propeller, no. And how to do that? Um, which I had a great teacher. Tyler had been doing it for years, and he's a very patient person. And he spent a few months with me, and like I did it for a little while, and I was like, man. Like, and when I would go drop my props off to him, I would always kind of be in awe of the shop and look around and what is this, what is that? And, you know, kind of I'm a fix-it kind of person. I'm good with my hands and tools. And, you know, it's one thing led to another. I ended up buying the shop from him. Really? So and, you own it? Yep, I'm a full owner of the shop. And, you man. the employees too? Yeah, man, at the time it was just him, you know, he did it by himself and so so I got two others. Well, I mean, within a year it grew considerably, (laughs) way quicker than what I ever thought. But, you know, there wasn't a lot, I mean, a lot of people from around here were hauling their props off to, to other places to get fixed. Tyler didn't really put himself out there because he didn't have to. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, he was comfortable with his clientele, and you know, if you didn't like his time frame, he was perfectly comfortable telling you to go somewhere else. So, once I got in there, and everybody figured out that I learned how to do it and turned a few big jobs out, then it was like, oh my gosh, right. look out, here they come. <laughs> So, yeah, it really turned into a great thing. And it's a rewarding job, too. It's a lot of problem solving. You know, people will come to you, they have repower their boat, or they go swap a gear, um, this and that. Man, my boat's not running good. It won't come out of the hole. You know, then you go back to homework part of it, crunching numbers, or this design, that design, yada, yada, yada. And then when you get that phone call back from that person after you rework their props or you sold them a new set of props and they're like, man, my boat has never run this good. You know, yeah, yeah it's rewarding. That's awesome, man. That's you know? like, you know, I said it earlier to you, you know, that, it's like the essence of the boat. You know? It is, you know. And it's kind of cool that, you know, you did that full circle. Yeah. Being a fisherman and now taking it back to being the prop man. I'm yeah. Sure and it's like i look at those props too especially off certain boats that i do at times and like man are the things this prop seen you know (laughs) this prop seen some big ass fish man you know this one been around a long time man you know it's uh and it's still i didn't that network that i had built in 20 years of being in the fishing community it's still dealing with the same people you know right right. yeah exactly (laughs) and nowadays when i I go fish i you know i I still get out of the shop and i go fishing but it's under a total different role you know i'm not the man anymore that everybody's looking at you know the captain of the boat it's i get to look at the captain now and be like what's up dude you know (laughs) right it's such a 
I have a great time when I go now, just being in that different role. At 44 years old, I'm still in pretty decent shape and can move pretty good. I love bits to being in the cockpit, yeah. you know, catching bait, rigging bait, you know. All of it's fun, but, right? It is, you know. And uh, I had a really good time this past year. I ran some trips on the Restless with uh, Captain Jimmy Crochet, the old Gulf commander. And it was a cool there because me and Jimmy – had always been really good friends, but had always been fishing against each other. Right. He was the one of the few out there that I actually like shared information with, mm-hmm. you know, that or got information from that I could trust, right, right. you know, and this and that. And we were, the and then, small, right? yeah, Even between friends, right, small. for sure. And then to finally go out there and go on, run a trip and yeah. be fishing with them. Yeah. You know, and be on the same boat. Well, and might even be more Yeah, yeah it, it was awesome. Different pressure. I'm not under pressure. Yeah. I'm coming here to bring my skill to your boat and help us catch fish in that, but I'm in a different role now, you know. It's yeah. of no pressure. Pressure's not on me, man. <laughs> uh, that level of pressure as a captain, man. I, you know, I, <sighs> I felt it coming from the deck end and running my own boat. Mm-hmm. You know? People don't understand. Sometimes it's not even the clients, it's yourself. It's yeah. yourself's ego. Because, like, I mean, my family came with me last week when we went fishing. Right. But at the same time, there's this, like, I want to show them that I know how to catch fish. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. This, it, everybody. You put it to yourself, but it, and it doesn't always boat, happen. And it doesn't always happen. No. Uh-uh. No matter. Boat with, with guys that, you know, they're the captain and you get you get to play this other role. I mean, I definitely yeah. enjoy that. Yeah, for sure. I still go play deckhand all the time. Man, and the, the tournament aspect in the competition part and that, I don't know, some people are cut out for it and some people aren't, you know, because you're not going to win them all. Yeah. You know, it's uh, you're going to go out there and do your best and sometimes it works in your favor and sometimes it doesn't. Right. Just fishing or I guess life in general. Yeah, you know, you go in good. thinking – all the conditions are the greatest here and I got the greatest report from here and you go there and it's like, man, like you're fishing in a (laughs) desert, you know? Uh, And then other days you get unsure about whatever, you know, you had a bad first day and then the second day just you put the baits out and you can't beat the fish away from the boat, you know? That's one thing I always say, man, is being a a charter captain is a lot like life because you have to stay humble. Hmm. (laughs) It'll constantly For sure. put you in check. Just when yeah. you think, like, man, there's some days where I'll leave the dock and I just know I'm about to stroke them. Yeah. I just know it. I just, yeah. I just feel it and I know it. And sometimes it happens just like you thought. And yeah. Sometimes yeah. they throw you for a loop. Sorry, fellas. Time to head back to the dock, <laughs> you know. You had the, the dreaded, hey, fellas, wind them up, uh, you know, on days where you had a bad trip. Right. You know, on them days where you had a good trip. You know, tell them to wind them up. Yeah, for sure. Party back at the dock. But it's, uh, I don't know, I had a a competitive person, and the tournament aspect was was fun to me. And I don't know, I guess maybe after a while, I don't know what you, it changed or whatever. It became not as appealing. Really? 
I saw the goods and the bads of it, and I don't know, you know, everybody reached a certain point. At a certain point of 15 to 16 years into fishing, I knew what it had to offer. Right, right. You know, and at a certain point in your life, you stick with that and roll with it. Are you happy, or do you right, make, make a move? Yeah, make, make a move, you know, and I don't know. I made a move, and at that point in time in my life, too, you know, in this whole time in my career, I had a family, you know, I have had a family. I have a family. Yeah. Um, man, I'm happily married to my wife, Rena, of, what, 16, 17 years? Wow. I got three awesome kids. My oldest, Grace, she's a junior at LSU, nice. 21 years old, killing it. My son, Sam, he's about to graduate from high school. Uh, he flies airplanes at this private school over by Auburn and probably chase his aviation career when he gets out. Really? He's doing, so, he's doing, he's going to be a pilot. Yeah, man. He's, uh, at awesome, that school man. he goes to, he, he they have an aviation program and he flies a lot. He actually soloed last winter at, I guess at that point he was 18, 17, 18, soloed an airplane. That's awesome, man. You know, it's, uh, and then my youngest daughter, Mia, she's a freshman at, uh, Orange Beach High School. And, uh, yeah, they're killing it. Kids doing good. And, you know, I don't know. It was definitely, I have more of a set schedule nowadays. I don't have that. Hey, in two months, do you want to go here? Well, I don't know what the boat's going to be doing. Yeah. (laughs) You know, mama don't always like that answer. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Own boss and can more or less set your own schedule um but it's you know whole different total different responsibilities and different type of workload because uh in the fishing business whether you're a deckhand or whether you're a captain uh if typically if you're successful at either one you're working your ass off yeah (laughs) you know I know a lot of Good people. Don't come easy. No, look from that man. You got the coolest job ever, man. You fish all day. Yeah, right. And on the yacht level, more or less, the fishing part is just like a perk of taking care of that boat. Yeah, you know, because in that the world, is the fun part, right? yeah, of the yacht world, you know, a, a huge part of that captain and mate's job is taking keeping those multi million dollar boats up to par. Um, it's a full-time, full-time yeah, job. for sure, and it's a it's a lot of responsibility. Um, like my longest boat trip ever, like I drove the sherry from we left Venice, went to Anna Maria, Florida, which is right by Tampa Bay. That's on the west coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. Did some work on the boat, provision, took on fuel there and w- drove the boat to the panama canal holy cow yeah. across the gulf well straight, that's you know you're kind of halfway across the gulf at the tampa bay point so the route we took and you want to talk about like uh you know like a gut check you're about to trek five people the better part of 1400 miles across the ocean 
you know, and you're the one calling the shots. You're responsible if something goes wrong. Yeah. So the first leg of the trip from Tampa Bay, we strike out to the west coast of Cuba. You come right around like we skim the beach two miles off the west coast of Cuba. Like here's Tampa Bay and here's Cuba and you round Cuba. And from right there, I mean, it's damn near a thousand miles to the mouth of the Panama Canal. So what we do there is divert. Like on the boat I was on, what do we held? 2,600 gallons. I had a little over 3,000 gallons worth of fuel. And six, yeah, 600 gallons of it was in bladders. So crunching fuel numbers, you know, it's like, because it all depends on how you run the boat. You can chug a lug with that much fuel and drive a lap around the Gulf of Mexico. You bump those throttles up to make a little bit of better time, you better be keeping track of what you're burning. Because yeah, once you... A big difference yeah. You round that tip of Cuba. We rounded tip of Cuba, and what we do is pretty much break it in half. From there, you change your course uh, a little bit more easterly to go straight to the Cayman Islands. So from Tampa Bay to the Cayman Islands was like 680 miles, 660 miles. It was pretty much the better part of two days moving nonstop, day and night. And from there, it's 620, I think, from there to the mouth of the canal. So once we got to the Cayman Islands, huge bit of relief for me. It's like... You didn't get fuel from the time you left Tampa Bay until the time you got to Panama? Uh Uh-uh. And I showed up with what was in the bladders. I pretty much showed up in the Caymans with 600 gallons of fuel. So what was on the boat, like what the boat carried, I probably could have made it. But, you know, your (laughs) bladder's just built-in insurance, whatever. You flick a few switches. It's a good feeling in a boat when you look at your fuel gauge and it's going up. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It is. Because most of the time it's going down. But, you know, you flick that switch on and start dumping those bladders, and then you look down at your fuel, and it just came up 15%. It's like, oh, that's such a good feeling. (laughs) (laughs) But we took on there. We we got to the Caymans right before the sun came up. So we go to an anchorage. Like, you check in. They're catching you on radar coming in. If you don't call them, they're going to call you eventually before you get within 10 miles. And you tell them your intentions, what you're doing. You pre-call them and let them know you're coming, whatever. We get there. We get up into the anchorage. We throw the hook. The sun's just coming up, and, like, we're in gin clear water. You know, we just went 680 miles, you know. Uh, the better part of two days. two days yeah running day and night you know we do like 22 knots in the daytime and at nighttime we do 10 12 knots wow. um and from cuba to the caymans that was 250 miles that stretch it was six footers right on the nose <laughs> you know <laughs> so one saving grace was that kind of like when the sun would go down they would kind of chill out to about four to five but then as soon as the sun would start coming back up so we paddled around in the water around the boat you know it was probably 30 feet deep at the anchorage and you know looking at the bottom uh, we made it we ate breakfast they called us in we got fuel went through customs and then made the final leg you know, from there to the canal. Wow. 
Yeah, it was it was a cool trip. That's not that's typically not what people do whenever they go to Panama or Costa Rica, huh? Do they typically ship the boats over? The first time I went down there, I went on the first choice, and we loaded the boat on a ship, and uh, and we put the boat on the ship in Fort Lauderdale, and the ship drives you through the canal and dumps you out on the Pacific Ocean side. And then when we got to the canal, when you crossed the canal to go into the Pacific, they put a pilot on your boat, you know, to run through there. So we locked into the first set of locks right before the sun started going down. And you go through like a series of three locks, which raises you up like 90 feet. And once you get in the lake, it's not far across. Like, man, it might be 40 miles, maybe 30 miles you know and so when the pilot got on the boat after we came out of the locks that's where they get on the boat and he's like you know in case you got questions or whatever the place is lit up like an interstate and the guy looked at me and he goes are you comfortable running this boat in the darkness i was like yeah man (laughs) you know Hell, I'm going to learn to run in a boat in and out of the Mississippi River and its tributaries in the dark, you know. So, yeah, I was like, man, I'm pretty confident. And he goes, okay, if you'll run, we can surpass three groups because you come out of the locks in a group. And then once it gets dark, then you just start idling. Well, we passed three groups that were idling because I was comfortable running. We were out the locks in the other side before the sun came up. Yeah, it was cool. We were sitting on the Pacific side as the sun was coming up the whole time. Really? The whole time. Yeah. Man, they love making that, you know, the trip. I mean, if it was me, I would do it too. I mean, why not? But Buell and Sherry, I mean, cool people to travel with. Then left Pinas, fished our way all the way up through Panama, like Coiba, Sebaco, Hannibal Bank all that stuff which we had great fishing there too and uh up to costa rica where we spent like the next three months wow. fishing those fads out there that sounds like so much fun it is man <laughs> it, it's cool it's uh it was definitely one of the highlights of my career um being there with an operation like that with owners that that have one have done it before and it's easy to travel with people you know they don't show up to the boat with six people you know it's like just me and sherry right right. you know it's the people that make the trips man. Mm -hmm. whether it's charter clients owners oh yeah crew yeah and as a crew not to whatever it's part of the job if the boss brings six people you cater to them yeah, that's you just know, the job, right? yeah, that's it's just whatever. So happened that they like to do things this exactly. way, and it worked well for yep. you. we just want it's just us on the boat, right. you know. <laughs> so it was especially in tournament fishing too. They were like, uh, uh-uh, it's just us. If you bring somebody, they better be good at fishing, right. you know, which made our job, you know, better. You yeah. know, hell yeah, I'll bring three mates. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, well, man, but, I'm not gonna keep too much longer but I, I do want to ask you uh, maybe you got a story of a big blue marlin or, or something maybe the, the state record or maybe one with sherry and, and them man want to share. the the state record not only was it the state record 
it was just an epic battle of a fish that big and to fight. We fought that fish for seven hours. So walk me through it, man. Like what Seven, tournament was it? Is this it? is the Blue Marlin Grand Championship. This is at the wharf. This at the wharf. The, this is the one I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, this like <laughs> winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, like just to hang one up there, not even to win it, you know, is a cool <laughs> – just the way the wharf does it and, the, you know, the, the whole setup there. Um, Scott Burke and Jim Cox and them guys just put on a show, man. It's the greatest show in sport fishing. Perfect yeah. name for it. But, it we're, you know, on the real fire, the 60-foot real fire, and we've – the whole tournament kind of started good. Like, we left out, and we were kind of heading to this area where we fished the week before out by Horn Mountain. There was a drill ship just offshore there. Well, we were heading in that direction, and before we even got to Horn Mountain, the yellow brick road of rips. Really? You know, like, yeah, and we were on a fast boat, so we were one of the first people there. We turn on this thing, we're not, we didn't, we were trolling, we didn't have baits out 15 minutes, Blue Marlin, hooked up. It was a pretty good one. It would have been one that we would have had to measure, you know, but the fish goes crazy, starts jumping. Like, we ain't been fishing 15 minutes. You know, yeah, on a lure, starts jumping, slings the hook, you know, throws the hook. It's like, ah, and everybody's kind of like, oh, man. You know, I had to give a little pep talk. Hey, we've been fishing 15, man, get them out. You know, it's it's whatever. This is the first day. We don't go another maybe 30, 40 minutes, catch second place yellowfin right there on Thursday. Shoot, it was... 162 it was in the 160s and uh so the sun went down that rip was right there horn mountain was inshore of us and there was that drill ship where we had caught fish the week before and the conditions were were consistent yeah right you know it was like all right we're gonna try to drift with this line and stay with it as much as we can tonight whatever if it's not formed up we got Horn Mountain, or we got this drill ship, the Enterprise, that was sitting. It was nine miles southeast of Horn Mountain. Well, that night, the line blew way up inshore. So it was, all right, we're going to fish this drill ship. Well, man, I immediately, there was like maybe six other boats there that kind of stayed at that drill ship. And when I eased up to it early, it's probably about three o'clock in the morning. I got started, just kind of didn't wake nobody up, just prospecting, driving around the rig, looking for bait. And, man, I was like everything I like to see. Oh, yeah. You know, you didn't drop diamond jig five feet. Boom, you got a bait. Big baits, little baits, yellow fins, black fins, skippies, catching skippies on diamond jig. You know, that's – anyway, so – and then here comes the weather. Oh, nice yeah. Oh, the black wall, the, the lightning bolts coming, temperature drops six, eight degrees. Right as we had caught bait, and this like right as the sun's coming up, like <laughs> everybody's down there in slicker suits. I'm driving the boat in a slicker suit, cold, you know, in, in July. Right. And boats kind of started peeling away after the sun had been up for a couple of hours but the weather was crap 
And like, I'm getting away from the rig and I'm marking big marks. I'm marking wads of bait away from everything I like to see. You know, and boats are kind of steady peeling off. Oh man, not getting, I'm going here. I'm going there. I'm like, good. Keep on rolling. Get on out of here. Because that was one of those things I see, and it's like, it's not happening right this second, but it's going to happen. You know, get a quarter mile away from the rig, you know, or more, and still marking good marks. Just that gut feeling. Yeah. Every captain's got it. Yeah. Well, right there at daylight, too, we caught one of those giant black fins. Giant black fins. I mean, just... The one that you couldn't stuff in the tube. But it was perfect timing because we were right about to start fishing. So it was like bridle that one up and just run it off the rod tip. You know, the big bait. That bait dug, dug all morning. Like he kept pulling drag off the reel. Like I could tell Eric Chandler, who was my deck hand at the time, was getting irritated. Like messing with this bait was about 9 30 in the morning that bait's still digging still alive eric just keeps easing them out he's getting tired getting tired at about a little after 10 o'clock between 9 30 and 10 the clouds started parting Mm -hmm. sun starts coming out i'm still marking good it's like boys just y'all bear with me just (laughs) bear with me oh yeah well at about i guess 10 o'clock ish maybe a little after 10 eric comes up the ladder the boss's son is up there with me everybody's kind of down in the pit like everybody was like paying attention and like looking and watching the baits but talking you know i'm driving the boat looking backwards here's eric connor shotgun a beer hell yeah all right whatever let's get us a bite so we shotgun a beer dude i'm telling you not 15 minutes later (laughs) like clockwork like clockwork and everybody just kind of like happened to be looking out there because when this fish bit it chased the bait up towards the top of the water obviously but at this time the bait had eased this a couple hundred feet behind the boat dude this fish ate going from the right to the left like halfway out of the water like oh yeah it was like and everybody goes oh my god and you know it was like you know and i'm looking at the rod and lines peeling off i'm like okay cool cool you know and it 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 happened to be the boss or the rod right next to where the boss was standing he was right it was one that was you know was right there in the gunnel he's standing between the gunnel and the fighting chair perfect everything perfect fish kind of gives a half-ass going away jump like when i saw that like i was looking straight down that fish's back and it like it tried to jump <laughs> like it went to get out. <laughs> and just kind of gave one of those and i was like oh. man i wasn't thinking 800 pounds i was like this is a kill fish you know little did i know seven hours later <laughs> so what happened we, after that dive did it take a man the fish never went down it stayed up on top i would say probably six of the seven hours of the battle the fish was within a hundred feet of the boat really so y'all could look down in the water you could just see him yeah he was cruising on top sometimes so was, the was tip of his tail no because we hooked him at 10 40 yep and fought him right well into, the afternoon. well into the afternoon seven hours like you know it was yeah it was still plenty of light the whole time seismograph boats coming by and hollering at me on the radio this fish in a straight line drug us nine miles 
not but within that nine miles who knows how many loop-de-loops and like we had this fish on the wire 20 times times. i mean just every time eric would grab the leader and pull the fish would make a hard left hand turn and like try to go under the boat so we'd go from showering down backwards to going full reverse like oh shit i'm about to run them over you know but then finally there towards the end I mean, the fish was still swimming straight up, upright. It just kind of took a funky turn. It went under the boat. I kind of bumped the ass end around, and Eric grabbed the leader, and I saw him take a wrap and started coming. Like I was like, because oh, every time before he'd grab the leader, and psh, you know, like I mean, we're fishing, and we had three hundred pound leader on there, right. eight hundred and fifty pound fish. You can't right. triple wrap it and pull. Right you know so yeah he got that wrap on there and he leaned back and i was like oh my god here he comes you know finally he got the fish's head Mm -hmm. coming and man this thing like corner of the boat here it came out from that port corner and it kind of come towards the surface almost like wanting a windshield wiper eric took another wrap took another wrap and we had two people standing there with it and i was just put that starboard one in reverse and slid the ass end over. And he, he goes, the greatest words, sticker. <laughs> oh, Connor put one in her shoulder and he goes, sticker again. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uncle Ivan sticks one in the fish right in the shoulder. It's like, done. The fish just laid on the side of the boat. I mean, seven hour battle. I wasn't wow, really. Man, I bet you guys I mean, it, it was nuts, you know, and we got the fish in and got it to the dock about maybe 20, 30 minutes before the scales closed that really? on Friday, you know, because oh, okay. if we yeah. didn't, we yeah. would have had to let it lay on the, you know, whatever, but that was a, a pretty insane catch. Did you guys go back out and fish? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did. We went back out the next day and went like one for two, like right out front in open water. It was like one of them trips you couldn't do wrong, you know. <laughs> That's such an awesome story, man. And I got to ask yeah. you, just because I've heard other people talk about this, but do you think those big blue marlins like that, I mean, those seven-hour battle, and you said that this fish was up on the surface, do you think they, they're, like, smart and they learn how to fight? I've heard. I've man, heard I don't know. I don't know how I much mean, the truth. the way that you described that fight, to me, it seems like this might be something a little bit smarter than a tuna fish. Like, <laughs> this fish has been hooked before. I don't like, know about kinda, that, but baby uh, knows that you're coming, and I don't know. The fish definitely knew that last 30 feet, it did not like the boat being close to it. Right. And then when Eric would grab the leader, the fish immediately could feel that difference. Like I said, the first probably six, eight times maybe he touched that leader, immediately the fish would make a left-hand turn and try to dive underneath the boat wow. you know like <laughs> why wow. I, I don't know i don't know he did get under the boat one time and i was like oh my god but eric my deckhand quick thinking as soon as he dove like the fish started die i couldn't get out of the way quick enough you know it happened too quick eric goes slack the drag off and chris pulled the drag back and let the fish go and that change in pressure made that fish change direction, and he swam right back out from under the boat. Wow. And it was like, 
That never happens. It was like, oh my gosh. Um, but there's one more story. I think I remember you telling me that whenever we were you were down in Venice with the sherry. But did, did I don't know if you remember it? But do you remember jumping in the water for a lure? Oh yeah, definitely. What was that yeah. story? Because I don't remember well, it all the way, and I'd like to hear it again. Man, and it's all—it's all on video too. It's really? like the because it was in a tournament and it was a release was fish. So yes, it was on the first choice because I was in—I was in the cockpit, and we had a a guy, Mike Q, a great friend of mine, awesome to be on a boat with guy. He's from Hawaii, and he would come over and and be a second mate on the boat you know during tournament season but when he would come he would bring these because hawaiians are big lure makers and they take pride in it you know and like he had this one guy in particular that that made lures for him and this guy was handicapped like in a wheelchair and he was like man this guy makes me these lures and gives me here try these in the gulf well this one in particular that he had brought like when i first looked at it i got like laughed I was like, what the heck is that thing? It had this square, funky-shaped head, like, beveled on the sides. Long story short, we started putting this thing out. Like, I wouldn't let him put it out on my side. I was like, you can put that stuff out. Because, like, I had the port side of the boat. He had the starboard. You know, it's like, you can do whatever you want over there. This thing got just chewed we couldn't beat the fish off of it it's just getting yeah, it was like and you know of course every time we get a bite on it look at see you. see <laughs> it's like yeah go figure the one i make fun of it it's doing the best for us but we hooked a fish on it and i, I don't know it must have been a kink in the leader because we ran it on four or five hundred pound mono mm-hmm. and the fish wasn't big it was a releaser we were releasing it you know uh i was wiring it and mike was tagging and you know wrap the fish pull it up to the side he goes boom and puts the tag in and like that little extra pressure of him putting that tag in it like the leader broke and immediately i was like oh that wasn't just a lure you go buy off a shelf this guy made it in his garage in hawaii like it had a dried mackerel head inside of it (laughs) you know like so i think i have it in there um yeah it's in that room and uh pop it popped and like mike was in front of me and immediately i don't know my brain just works fast in situations like that and immediately i was like lure you know, because as soon as it pops, it comes right off the right off right. the leader. But it had a pink skirt on it, uh-huh. like a pink, purple, and black skirt. And boom, when it popped, like I just kind of took a side sidestep off the side of like I told myself in that instance, if I can still see it, I'm going to get it. And when I cleared Mike's shoulders, I could see that pink skirt going the edge of the wheel wash. And I jumped in the boat. <laughs> the girl video and like the videos, she goes, what is he doing? <laughs> and then you just hear like crickets chirping because nobody really knew what the hell. You jumped in the Dude, water to get the lure. I huh? jumped in and I paddled. I come out of the bubbles like this and we're in gin clear blue water, you know, and I had a little bit of breath left and that lure was right in front of me like, I took a couple of more hard kicks and I just did a hand swipe like, and I 
caught a few sprigs of the skirt in my fingers and I got it. <laughs> I come up to the surface and like I, the lure like this. And then at that, Mike knew what I was doing, but everybody else like, what the, what is he doing? He just jumped in the water, but I'll be damned. That lure still fishes today. Uh, I, whenever you told me that story. Yeah. That's a badass story. You yeah, you can't let your lure just sink to the bottom like that. It's a good lure. Right. <laughs> it's not like it was a mold craft or something. Right, you right, could go right. buy you another it's one. Special, uh, especially off the fish. Yeah, bottom. and it got chewed up that year. The It was a big lure, so the like strike-to-catch ratio wasn't great on it. You know, more or less it should have been a teaser, but like the golf mentality of trolling and stuff, if it's out – put a hook in it you know whatever um but yeah i saw a lot of that trolling thing evolve into a lot of live bait and hell i don't think hardly anybody trolls anymore doesn't seem like it huh <laughs> mm. there's at a time and a place for everything you know it's you're not a well-rounded fisherman if you can't do both but I do see this younger generation coming up in live baiting. I've took a few deck cans and watch the trolling spread get put out and they put their back to it. Like you got to fish that spread too. You can't just put that thing out there and just go in and make you a sandwich. You know, yeah. that kind of, there's an art form to fishing, you know, to trolling and doing yeah. things and being it's a fisherman. Being well right? Yeah, exactly. Can't be good at just taking care of the boat or just, <laughs> just trolling or just yeah. Because now they got these old lures only tournament. They do, that? you know. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, one at the wharf. I think the New Orleans Invitational this year is like going to lures only, and you got these, you know, whatever this a uh, 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 group of fishermen that do it that. Oh, well, these big but it's not fair. I, I don't know. I think it's about being a well-rounded fisherman. Yeah. You know. You need to be able to Get know better. how to lie bait. Whatever better and, is. Get right. Better. <laughs> Especially if you're going to compete. Right. <laughs> you know, it's all part of the total package. You know, I'll just lie bait. Well, good luck. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'll just troll. Well, good luck. Right. You know, there's a time and a place for both. And be well-rounded and, and good at both is going to work to your benefit. Yeah, for sure. I promise yeah. you. <laughs> you know, but... uh Man, is there, is there any other stories you want to share? I don't know. It doesn't have to be Blue Marlin or, or tournament specific. You know, big Makos, big Tobias, big... Man, one of the most memorable catches, it's a Marlin one, but... I don't know. I like, love was my wife getting to catch a black Marlin in, in Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Off the, the fad. Typically on the fads, you don't see... Uh, uh, a lot of the, the black marlins they're typically closer to shore kind of thing but uh, she made a, a I got to take my wife on an epic three day fish the fads in Costa Rica and she caught a blue and a black wow. you know that was, was on, the on the sherry you wow. know that was pretty cool to get to share that yeah. with my wife you know to yeah let's see what's going what we're doing down here and and this and that um you know i've so many fishing stories and you know a lot of them run together but you know the marlin fishing definitely my biggest yellowfin tuna in a tournament was 204 
that was in the New Orleans Invitational. And uh, my biggest yellow fin in the Gulf period was 227. And caught it on a play fishing trip. Really? Trolling. <laughs> yeah. Trolling. trolling. Wow. Um, and I tell you what, though, I, I don't know. It seems like there's been more 200 pounders caught in like the last two years, three years than whatever it used to be. I mean, I'm, dude, I remember when I first got down to Venice. Might hear like two or three, maybe four a year. Yeah. You know, now they're—I don't know what it is—the size, the average size, or the, the big size just grew a little bit over the last few years. But it. Or is fishermen getting better? Um, I don't know. There's. Some, I don't some know. Big ones coming in, but. Yeah. Where did you catch that two twenty-six? Shoot, that was. Probably in two thousand three or two thousand and four. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a. Yeah, it was an open water fish leaving either Lena or Cognac and just kind of we were headed to Mars and Ursa and it was like well let's just pull away from the rig for a couple miles before we wind them in smash (laughs) ain't no fish ever been caught between Mars and Ursa and Lena and Cognac huh (laughs) that zones uh, can you believe they took up Lena man I know isn't that a relic God, it was there the first time I, you know, well, you know, back it then. It just looks weird heading out now and it's not there. And what, uh, I don't know, you could take that any which way. They're removing habitat or yada, yada, yada. I don't, I don't know. I think they ought to just decommission and leave them. Yeah. You know, you are. Hey, we'll go ahead and move this into my last question as it usually is, is about conservation. But like, you know, I totally agree with that. Like, don't. Don't take this habitat out of here. I, I mean, to me, there's there's very little argument as far as taking it out other than their dollar, the bottom line. Right. I mean, that is habitat. It is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I don't know. Somebody will make money by that removal and scrapping that thing, and at the end of the day, they own it. They put it there. Yeah. I guess as fishermen or whatever, you can't lay claim yeah. to that. But I think in the conservation world, the fisherman's voice needs to be listened to for sure. People that live it day in and day out and people that have done it for a long time and seen changes. Um, Do I think the government has any clue, like I say the government, or does anybody have any clue of how many fish are out there? Dude, no. No. I say that all the time, and it gets me so amped up. Um, to, to hear people want to sit there and tell us how many red snapper or how many tuna or how many whatever it is, how many pogies are out there, uh, we don't have a clue. I do think fisheries like what go on of the vicinity of the mouth of the river, like the pogie boats. Come on, man. Come on. Net fishing. Taking mass populations of fish out of the ocean. Rape of the ocean. Nets do not discriminate. They catch everything big, little. Tarpuses, tarpons, bull ribs. It can't be good to take mass amounts like that. Right. Person, particularly. Like, man, I, you should have seen some of the operations down there in in Panama moored up in the Gulf of Panama there on the multi 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 million dollar 
purse sane operations. The motherships, they got two or three helicopters sitting on them. They got umpteen chase boats and who knows how many freaking miles of net. You know, they're going out there, kill shit. Get it all. Mass. There's just, no stop, you know. It's like whenever we go out there to have a good time, there, there might be a stop involved at some point, you know. And whenever y'all had enough, but whenever you involve money in it, like yeah. that, there's never enough. When has anybody been like, oh, you know what? Got a million dollars. Let's just stop now. Right, right. <laughs> I think like it that. needs to come down to the actual person fishing and doing it to regulate yourself, yeah. regulate your customers. Yeah. Um,. I know everybody wants to have that big board at the end of the day, but uh, is it is it doing good for the fishery in the long term? Uh, who's to say? And then you go, well, I've never seen as many 200-pounders as I've seen in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, do I see acre patches of yellow fins out there around majority of any random rig like I used to see now? No. You think there's far less tunas than what they used to be? I I don't know. Or did they change their pattern? Right. You know, I I don't, people still catch them like crazy. That's such a good answer because we don't know. No. (laughs) I mean, there's not enough money in this world, I think, that could be spent to give us that answer. Right. How many fish are in the Gulf of Mexico? How many red snappers? How many yellowfin tunas? You know, whatever, a, a pelagic fish is kind of falls in its own category as far as a season because traditionally people thought that oh well they move around and they go from place to place and do well they've tagged these things and proved their residents yeah, you know this and that yeah. well i don't know you know the day that the government steps in and puts a season on the elephant tuna what sense does that make why haven't they right. everything else got a season um, all I know that, you know, for as far as for fishing and business part of it, nobody wants to see that. But is that coming? Yeah. I mean, one trigger fish per person and trigger season, snapper season, you know, yeah. amberjack season, grouper season. When's yellowfin tuna season coming? Yeah. Uh, what do you, I mean, if, if somebody gave you a magic wand and said, you know, what's, what's, What's a what's the better way to do this? Maybe not the best. I'm not saying you know, but like, what's a better way to do this than what we're doing right now? Just the the fishermen themselves doing the regulation okay. and stopping the garbo. Maybe maybe kill change them all. the mentality a little bit. Right. Fishing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Steer it away from how much you're sticking on that board depends on the good time you had that day. Okay. That, that you know. I saw that in tournament fishing over the years where one particular guy that I worked for coming in from a tournament and we got a box slammed full of good fish and we caught fish the whole time, but it sucked because his name didn't get on the board or the boat didn't win no money. You know, the show part, man, well, we still had a great trip, you know, or you go out there and you, you catch a few fish. Everybody had a great time on the charter, but you don't have you know, four 150 pluses to hang up. You know, what what constitutes a good time we're having out here at fishing at the end of the day, there's gonna be good days and bad days. 
when you have the good days do you capitalize and try to cram your boat full of so fish that you, right, that you know that is going to go to waste yeah. a lot of it's going to go to waste um i don't know i think just as far as the community of fishermen as a whole yeah. to regulate themselves yeah. because as far as to wait for somebody to tell you what you can catch and when you can catch and what you can't based on because they know how many fish are out there. That's not, <laughs> that's not real life, <laughs> you know, regulate yourself, yeah. you know, and as a charter captain or a private boat captain at a certain point, you got to shut it, man. That's enough. Yeah. That's enough. Shut that's it enough. down. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I tried to do that as, you know, a captain because I, I think my brothers kind of kept me in check, you know, because, you know, as a charter captain, we'd come back and I'd have, you know, <laughs> a, pile of, a pile of fish at the at the dock or whatever. And they're like, man, <laughs> who needs all that? You know, who needs this and who needs that? And, you know, at the time, I'd say, y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all don't see this fishery here in Louisiana and what it has to offer. And uh, <clears throat> I tried to just start doing everything with the best intent possible. So... You know, I tell people, start telling people that they didn't need to, you know, take all these fish or right. training your coat or teaching, teaching. teaching. Yeah, exactly. Teaching. And it's like, man, if you don't fill your freezer this time, maybe you can just come back in a month. And what I started to realize is that people would come back a little bit more often. And now try to take the approach that uh, I don't know if you know uh, Jimmy Gringo. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> long time. Day, he told me one day at the dock. He said, "I'm I'm looking forward to having him on the podcast." He really wants to do oh it. man, he will be a good one. <laughs> but he told me one day, he said, uh, "Keep, uh, keep less and take care of it better." And that's what I've tried to do. You know, I bleed all the fish, and I try to tell people, you know, like, look, let's not fill your freezer. Let's get enough right. until you make it back here next time. Until <laughs> your next yes, trip, you know? moderation. You moderation. know, like, be realistic. How much are you going to eat yeah. this year? And then to the longer it sits there and then you open that freezer up and you're like, oh, well, man, that's been in there for eight months. Yeah. You know, like, ah, but in the heat of the moment, people are fishing and they're going and it's like, get them. I don't think a lot of times in scenarios, I've been in crush scenarios over the years. And then, but in the heat of the moment, you're not really thinking that. Then afterwards, yeah. like when you hang them up on the board and you're like, and you're like oh, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of excess. And I'm sure a lot of us have doing right. that th done that throughout the fishing career as well. You know, it's like when you're younger, you don't really have no breaks on you. But I don't know. I, I feel like I've just taken advice from people that are much older than me right. in that regard and, and just kind of taking a liking to that. Because yeah. I can do it and feel good about doing it. Because yeah. if you're doing something yeah. and somebody says, what you're doing right there, man, that's messed up. You shouldn't be killing that many fish. And you can look at them straight in the eye and say, "Nope, what I did right there, that's good." And, and I can I can sleep at night good with that. Yeah. Then that's good. But if you can't, if you really think that maybe you killed a little bit too much, take a second, think about it. <laughs> maybe you're not doing it with the best intention. Exactly. You know? And you know, and we've all been guilty of it at right, times. Exactly. I mean, you're a, you were commercial. Yeah. Fan, I know. You know what I, mean? I know. And, but it's it's good. It's yeah. good to you know grow and learn. I mean, my right. younger brother, he's as big as a cons more of a conservationist than I am. Right. But he's about to go spend the summer up in Alaska net fishing for salmon. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? He wants to go see it too. <laughs> yeah, you know, he first hand. Yeah. See, what it is, yeah. see, what it's, see what all, it's about, all see aspects. Right, yep. exactly. And then it's what's hurting more, the commercial end of it or the, 
recreational end of it. Ah, you know, whatever. It's pros and cons to either end, but if to point the finger at who's we worse. Can, we can sustain sending fish throughout the entire world in one localized fishery. I think we need to figure out a way to localize it. Like, you shouldn't be able to eat red snapper up in Chicago. Right. Maybe you should have to travel down to the Gulf Coast. Maybe I should have right. to go to Alaska to eat king crab. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Keeping it local, because the thing, like, I have uh, whatever about is, like, when you local places here along the coast and restaurants and you go in there and they're serving tilapia and sway yeah, or swa, whatever the hell they call that. I know, like support your local. You know, you're you're a restaurant, and from your restaurant, you can smell the salt air off the Gulf of Mexico. And your special that day is is fried whitefish. Well, what is whitefish? Oh, well, it's sway. Swai. How do you? I don't even know how to pronounce it. Sway, swai. It's like in the tilapia family. You know, it's some farm raised. If they figured out the way to. To localize it, we'd start using a lot more of the fish, like the collars and stuff. Mm-hmm. You see so much of that stuff get thrown away. Man. The collars and the, I mean, I, I know you're a good yourself, and you know how good that stuff so is. So good. It's so away, good. You know? And how many I threw away off the charter docks of Destin. Yeah. Because in the days I was doing it there, you know, your snapper limit was four per person. Um, I do see a better snappery fishery today as far as the grade of fish. Because, uh, I mean, the average size is oh, yeah. 100%. Like, because I, I mean, I on a, in back in the day, and like when I used to go out fishing with your dad and stuff, I mean, you might have to catch four or five, sometimes six or more, to catch one that was 16 inches yeah. or, or bigger than six to keep. Nowadays, I mean, how many red snappers are you measuring? Not many. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. You know, they're they're no the grade of the fish is so much better. It's like, what are you? You got to measure that one. Right. You know, um, as it working on that aspect. Uh, yeah, what a booster to the economy! Snapper season in the Panhandle, there. Yeah, you know, big boost. Knows, I just, as far as seasons go, like I don't. I don't know if I'm right about this, but I think what happens is you have an influx and a deflux of food, and it, it creates imbalances. So I think if we could figure out a way to take the same amount of fish gradually, like go down to like a boat limit, two per boat, right. one per boat. Right. Boat limits, boat limits, to me, make more sense Thank you. than I, per I person. Agree with that. Totally, totally. Because it's a team. We're not yeah. out here going against each other. And, right. And I wanted to say this on the podcast before. Anytime you're out there fishing with somebody and you got this mentality where one's doing better than the other one, it's not it's not supposed to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed yeah. to be we're all out here in this one spot and we're right. a team to catch yeah. them, you know what I mean? So yeah. you could fill you could feed four people easily with one red snapper. Oh, easy. Easy. <laughs> you know, but then again, people want to piss and moan that they can only catch what what is it now two per person yeah two per person person. that's a lot of fish man it is it is i mean that's i think like back when i was charter fishing in destin the grouper granted it was combined but if i'm not mistaken it was 10 per person yeah you know uh, um take 10 per boat is much more practical yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> ten, ten per person. person. Grouper? Like, I what? mean, what? 
uh, you know, yeah, it's combined. You can have a red, a black, <laughs> gag, you know, snowies, whatever. It doesn't it's make like, any sense to me either. Uh, like, with like, I do some lane snapper fishing in, in the winter months and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, I have to throw back a lot of red snapper to get the lane snapper, but it, it's, I'm fishing for the less abundant species. Right. And I can't wrap my my head around why that makes sense sometimes, you know. Challenge. With, with the season. I do like the challenge. Yeah. I do appreciate the yeah. challenge. But and you can keep that season. lane anytime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we the can keep that one. aspect of it just gets to me. I just don't, you know, I don't know. They need to figure yeah. out something. Yeah. Uh, who knows what all the answers are? Who knows where the future will go? You know, it's it's definitely looked on and regulated pretty heavily. You know, with the regulations and that, and you can make all the laws you want unless you can police them. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. You know, how many people are going out here and filleting and releasing? Yeah. And, oh, you know, when I was so – the season was this long, so that's what I'm going to do. Ah, I don't know. Who, who's to say who's right and who's wrong? Yeah. But I do know one thing. In our backyard, we have an incredible fishery in the Gulf of Mexico Definitely. for bottom critters, uh, to marlins, to tunas, uh, whatever. We don't have stripies. We don't have black marlin. Um, <laughs> but we've got an abundance of, of other species that are strong here, and we need to keep that on, keep yeah. it, you know, protected. And, and that's, you know, one of the things I want to – in spite of changing laws, I mean, I think laws maybe maybe could help, but I, I think the bigger uh, thing at hand is the mentality behind the fishermen. Yeah, for sure. About, so. And let your fishermen be, you know, front runners for training the people that they take out there. Right, for the to, next people that are, yes, that are learning. Right, them. exactly. You know, to pass it on down the line. But, uh, man, it's like, I love what you're doing and the direction you're going with your stuff. And, like, from knowing your dad and the type of person your dad was, I, I could totally see it <laughs> out of you. And it's so funny, like, when we used to come in behind your house and park the boat and clean fish and to see, like, you and your two brothers fighting at the fish, like, over the, the fillet. Because me and my brother look at each other and laugh because that was, like, <laughs> me and him, you know, fighting. Now, give me the knife. No, I'm cleaning this one. I clean. But, you know, your dad, that, that was some cool times fishing with your pops that I'll never forget. I mean, your dad, he's a good – he's a solid, oh, well-rounded, like, just – cool individual if anybody gets a chance to go fishing with primo go fishing mark primo miller he is he yes very very good but yeah the my diving days are over um you know tempting that anymore uh no but i go out there and anytime you're passing through the coast i'm sure you'd love to have a drink yeah for sure i'll do that like or I said, if you're ever in Venice, man, and you want to come fishing with me, yeah, I'll me definitely we'll do go, that. We'll go fishing. You take your wife and your kids fishing. I'll take take like my son Sam and and go put him on a triple tail. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, on. one of those. We'll yeah, plan it out for I'm sure. For sure. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for, for yeah, man. man, for the food, for the hospitality, and no problem. the conversation. I really appreciate it. This is the homestead. <laughs> I spend a lot of time right here nowadays. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, or get my fishing fix when I when I want to get it. But um, it was great talking to you. We'll do it again. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. No problem. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please give us a follow on Facebook or Instagram at Tunatown Talks. Also, if you'd like to book a charter with me, you can do so by visiting our website at mgfishing.com. That's Mexican Gulf website where you'll find my online booking calendar with all my open dates. And remember, guys, always be safe while out on the water.